You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg. Grab a stool and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Rosemary Ellen Guiley joins us from New Orleans in Hour 2 to discuss time slips Hour one, the long overdue return to the program of one of my favorites, definitely in the pantheon of great researchers in the alternative history arena. Joseph Farrell is standing by to discuss all things geopolitical. Before that, very quickly, I want to take a moment to thank several of our Star Chamber tier donors on patreon.com forward slash strange planet. Brad Robinson, Denny Bladell, and Peter Ward. Thanks for all your support every month. Now, if you want to become an official supporter of The Conspiracy Show and my YouTube channel and my podcast, Conspiracy Unlimited, just visit patreon.com forward slash strange planet. Joseph Farrell is a recognized scholar whose credentials include a Ph.D. in philosophy from the University of Oxford. His literary contribution is a veritable resume unto itself, covering such fields as Nazi Germany, sacred literature, physics, finances, the Giza pyramids, and music theory. A renowned researcher with an eye to assimilate a tremendous amount of background material. Joseph Farrell, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Richard. Thank you for having me back. It's been a while. What are you working on these days? Uh, I just did a new book. Uh, it's available on Lulu called Microcosm and Mediator, or pardon me, Microcosm and Medium. And I'm working on a kind of a sequel to it right now, which I'm hoping will be out. Cross your fingers uh, in sometime this autumn. Now, for those, uh, and there there may be one or two of them out there, not familiar with your body of work, your tremendous body of work, if you had to summarize sort of the underlying or the, the common thread, mm. uh, how would you describe your work? Well, if you look at it at the whole opus or output, uh, basically it's it's the age-old conflict of good versus evil, of, of conspiratorial powers uh, basically trying to lord it over the rest of us. Uh, that That would be the best way to look at it. And it has always been thus, right? Since the planet mm-hmm. cooled. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but the players, the the I guess the names change. Uh, yeah. The the players change. I mean, there's some very very old families, I guess, still yeah. you know uh, on the stage. But is it is it more important to understand the names or or the process? 
I think it's more important to understand the process and to understand, uh, by process, I would say the playbook. Uh, because if you look at the playbook, Richard, uh, you know, just just going back even as far as the Renaissance and and to the Italian city-states, the banking city-states like Genoa and Venice, the playbook hasn't really changed that much. Uh, they're still up to the same old shenanigans. And to give you a case in point here, uh, there was a fellow by the name, I believe, if my memory serves me correctly, by the name of Paolo Sarpi in Venice. And he was the first Malthusian. He was the Malthus before, you know, before Thomas Malthus that that first came out with the idea of a maximum carrying capacity, population capacity for planet Earth, which he he said at one billion. <laughs> and of and of course, you know, he was working for the international bankers banksters of the day, being based there in Venice on the Rialto. So you know, it hasn't changed that much. Uh, the the new Malthusians. I mean. They seem to be uh, garbed or wrap themselves in the environmental banner or mm-hmm. the the progressive banner, mm-hmm. and there it's what's changed it now is that they seem to have, or at least have staked out a claim of moral authority. Yeah, yeah, they've they've staked this out, and and they've staked it out in such a way. And I think this is an important point to understand, you know, if we're going to talk about politics and geopolitics. They stake this out in such a way to make it appear as if cultural issues are political issues. Let's take the case of Emmanuel Macron in France. You know, this guy is a Rothschild shill. He's a he's a technocrat. He's a banker. He's living high on the hog in the Elysee Palace. And he comes out and, and tells the world at, at the monument of, of Verdun, the great World War One battle that you know the kind of nationalism that we see now is is not genuinely patriotic, and these people were fighting for this global new world order, which of course you know ask an average Frenchman at Verdun in 1916 if that's what he's fighting for, right? Right, and you know the answer would be a very firm no. And Macron follows this up with statements to the effect that, well, there's no such thing as French culture. And, you know, Catherine Fitz pointed this out in her annual wrap-up just a few days ago, that, you know, France's largest portion of its gross domestic product is exporting French culture. Exactly. (laughs) Excellent point. So it's just nuttiness. These, These people are just nuts. But, but. It's important that to remember that their agenda is to really destroy any vestige of Western culture and replace it with, with a technocratic new world order. And this is the reason that we're seeing all the pushback in France, Germany, the Netherlands, Italy, Spain, the United States, you know, pretty much anywhere you go in the Western world. Well, this yellow vest uh, movement, mm-hmm. uh, can we call it a movement yet? I mean, it has – there were – hints that it was spreading not only within France it first started in Paris and then more rural areas because mm-hmm. obviously the agricultural sector was perhaps hardest hit mm-hmm. uh, by this fuel tax but then there were inklings that it was spreading into to, to Belgium and places mm-hmm. like that there was even a yellow vest protest out in Alberta our mm-hmm. western uh, province uh, because 
our prime minister has sort of reenacted the national energy program that, that got his father in great uh, uh, difficulty and has, has, has stirred up Western separatism again. But is uh-huh. the Yellow Vest movement here to stay, do you think? Is it perhaps even a tipping point? Oh, I think it's definitely here to stay in one form or another. I mean, it may it may morph into something different, but the fact of the matter is, let's 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 turn to Germany for a moment. I read a, a an article recently where the Alternative for Deutschland party, which is the you know the up and coming so called populist party in Germany, well, it's just Germans basically fed up with you know being overrun by by so called refugees and a double standard of law being applied to them. In the east, the former eastern zone of, of Germany, the Alternative for Deutschland party is now the leading party. Wow. Not just regionally, yeah. but we're talking across the country? No, just in the former eastern zone. Oh, the in the former, former eastern, eastern zone. Right. Right. But it's now the leading party, you know, and it's it's done fairly well in other regional elections in Germany. Uh, a few years back, another another telltale sign that something big was brewing was the Dutch leader Hert Wilders gave a speech uh, to a more or less packed out audience of, of very nicely dressed middle class Austrians in the Hofburg. <laughs> Hmm. <laughs> you know, which which takes a little doing, you know, to be invited to give a speech there. So this is not a movement that's going to go away. I think I think the global loneliness, as I like to call them, have overplayed their hand. And they're trying to force everybody into this uh, this cultural homogeny, this cultural stew, and people don't want it because they recognize that there's more at stake than than just their national sovereignty it's it's their it's their cultural identity and you can't have a functioning economic system really without an undergirding culture that goes with it and that's you know that's the hard lesson in all of this i guess the question though is is it too late for europe because uh you know for for decades their only concern it seems to me and and what has defined their culture mm. in, in the absence of uh, say you know christianity which has mm-hmm. been on the rapid decline has been concern about shorter working hours greater maternity mm-hmm. leave more holiday time mm-hmm. this to me has defined europe uh is it too late now to re- reawaken and and dis- rediscover their culture no, I don't think it is. In fact, I see the opposite happening. Um, this this movement has, as you know, spread to Italy. You've got a new government in Italy. You've had the Hungarians and the Polish uh, just simply refusing to go along with the diktats coming out of uh, Brussels, a.k.a. Berlin. And I, I think this is going to spread. It's not going to go away. You know, we're, we're facing the same thing in this country. You're facing it in Canada. Uh, they're facing it in Australia. There have even been these, these yellow jacket protests in Taiwan, of all places. Wow. Yeah, so it's going to spread, you know. And the other odd thing about this, you mentioned the, the cultural pillar of Christianity, which, in my opinion, is one of the three cult- pillars of Western culture, the others being uh, the humanistic uh, pillar, and the third one being the idea of covenant or, or contract or rule of law, which, of course, comes out of, out of Judaism. But... Um, you're seeing something else happening, and I, I was just stunned when I read this, Richard. In China, 
they are fast approaching the stage that Christianity could become the majority religion in that country by the year 2030. There's already a quarter of a million people that identify themselves as, as Christian in China. I'm, I've been reading about these underground churches in places mm-hmm. like China and also Iran, uh, mm-hmm. but I had no idea uh, that it was growing. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm buoyed by that. I'm, uh, I'm absolutely, uh, you know, over the moon about, about that. Uh, yeah, China has uh, a lot of problems. I don't think Christianity is a problem, but I mean, in, ter- in terms of the regime, certainly it mm-hmm. is, but they have a whole host of demographic type uh, issues. Uh, maybe we can circle back to China later, but I just wanted mm-hmm. to stick with the populist uh, rising personified by the Yellow Vest movement. Um, I mean, how... What what does this portend for the future of the EU? Are we going to see like a a slow unwinding, or is it going to be more dramatic, almost like the fall of the Berlin Wall and then the the almost seemingly overnight collapse of the Eastern Bloc? Oh, what a what a great question! You know, a few years ago, I would have taken the position that you're going to see more or less a slow unwinding, and the reason I took that position is that basically the EU is nothing but the expansion of the old exchange rate mechanism, the, the uh, currency pegging system that existed in Europe prior to the current EU thing, where where the currencies of smaller nations were pegged to the Deutschmark, and then France came in and they reworked that whole thing and created the Eurozone. Uh, I I now think that with Macron looking so very, very weak, uh, Marine Le Pen is now leading him in all the polling in, in France. Angela Merkel, of course, we know is in huge trouble inside of Germany. So I at this stage, I would not be surprised that you're going to see a, a sudden unraveling uh, of the current EU structure, and there's already pressures, of course, to to uh, homogenize European militaries into a, a military structure. But the interesting thing here to note, Richard, is that Germany has already gone ahead and done this on its own by integrating various military units of of the of the Netherlands and the Czech Republic and so on into the German command structure. So. Regardless of what happens with the EU, I think you're going to see further nationalism. You're going to see uh, increases in defense spending. You're going to see a weakened American presence in Europe, especially, you know, with the current uh, trade wars going on between the United States and Germany. So this is this, I think, bodes ill for for the future of the European Union. Um but what to do with Macron? Because, uh, I mean, they could replace him with, I don't know, uh, the vice president, but they're not slated for more presidential elections for what, another five, six years? Yeah, they. that's correct. However, as I've been led to understand, he's had a couple of votes of no confidence. Now, I'm not sufficiently familiar with the French Constitution to know whether it's a full parliamentary system or if it's some amalgamation between that sort of system and the American system. But uh, regardless of what happens to Macron, if he manages to stay for the full term of his office, I think it's going to be uh, more or less of a lame duck presidency, and you're going to see this this revolt spread. Um, the same thing in, in, 
in Germany. Merkel has stepped down from the party leadership. She suffered a humiliating defeat in the Bundestag when she was unable to get her pick for, for the leader of the coalition in the Bundestag put through. So I think her days are absolutely numbered. And, you know, where Germany goes, like it or not, there goes the rest of Europe. And it looks to me like, like the days of her government are numbered. And that's going to, that is another bad sign for the EU because at this point, I don't think the alternative for Deutschland's party can be stopped. Uh, I'm not overly, I'm not too familiar with the Deutschland party uh, platform. Um, How would, how would we describe their brand of populism? Well, every effort is being made in the media to portray them as radical ultra right wing uh, people and this, you know, I've listened to a number of their their speeches in the Bundestag, and it's sim- they simply strike me as 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 German nationalists wanting to retain some semblance of German culture and and German sovereignty, and you can't blame them. Uh, they don't strike me as being radical in the way that the media has has tried to portray them. They they tried the same number on Herrit Wilders, and of course that didn't work, and they tried the same number on Marine Le Pen. And it worked to a certain extent to help get Macron elected. But I, I think, you know, with his recent statements, uh, his absolutely nutty statements, that, that that the mask is off and Mr. Globaloni is naked and exposed for all for all to see and hear. And I don't think he's going to last in France either. What will be the next or which will be the next domino? Uh, to fall, will it be Italy? With uh, I mean, that's more of a leftist populist uh, country, right. but still very nationalist. I mean, and, right. and they just right now the the people of Italy absolutely adore uh, this government, their president. Yeah, well, they for good reason because he's absolutely standing up to to Brussels and and the diktats coming out of Brussels. Uh, the the biggest domino that needs to fall, let's put it that way, is a realization by the European peoples that their their socialist governments and how they have played in with with the globalist agenda simply are not working. So there's they have to understand there's going to be no more free lunch. That's problem number one. Problem number two is with the rise of robotics and everything, it's going to become increasingly difficult for countries to maintain the type of employment that they've maintained before without moving in a direction of what I call human productivity. In other words, uh, production of things that are not necessarily things like automobiles or flipping hamburgers or things like that, but production in terms of the arts. And there, the Europeans are very uniquely poised to be able to make the transition to this new type of, of economy that we're moving into because they can, they can just as France has done in the past, they can market those cultural uh, monuments and traditions in a way that we have great difficulty doing here in this country and, and to a certain extent up there in Canada. So I think if the Europeans latch on to this idea of human productivity and uh, that sort of thing, that, that they're in a better position ultimately to exploit this transition. Uh, are you concerned, should we be concerned about, um, well, to me, when I look at someone like Trump or mm-hmm. uh, uh, or uh, Le Pen, 
I sort of see them as the the personification of Newton's third law. They are the opposite and equal reaction. Right. Um, But sometimes when the pendulum swings back the other way, it does so in a very violent and nasty manner. And I think we, uh, my concern is, although I am, you know, I would consider myself right wing and I'm I'm a populist. uh, We've seen this movie before. We know how it can end. Yeah, we have seen this before, and this is what I find very alarming about all this. It it could be that things would move in that direction. You know, President Trump is just this evening supposed to give a an address to the country about the border wall. Um, and there has been talk of him invoking presidential emergency powers to do so, which, you know, he certainly has the authority to do. Uh, it could very easily move in that direction as as the political left becomes more radicalized, more violent and vociferous in their demands and, and their unwillingness to compromise on anything. It could very easily move in that direction. And that frightens me as much as it frightens you. Uh, who concerns you most in, in Europe uh, with regards to, to, uh, to that potential outcome? Well, it's it concerns me the most, not so much in the Western European countries, but in the Eastern European countries, because there you have the greatest amount of pushback against Brussels. And what worries me is that in their turn toward America to... Uh, rely on American protection, they're really putting themselves and they're putting the United States in a very difficult geopolitical position. Um, You know, I go, I I made this prediction 10 years ago, Richard, that as American power begins to crumble, you would see America gradually shift its basing in Europe from Western Europe into Eastern Europe to prevent that dreaded Russo-German rapprochement, you know, a a Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact version 2.0. And this is exactly what we've seen happening. So, you know, we're being we're being pulled into a a situation much like the post-World War One Western allies were pulled into in having to guarantee the safety and security of the Eastern European countries against, you know, the two great European powers. And, you know, that eventually triggered World War Two. So uh, it's a very, very dangerous geopolitical situation that's going on, especially when you consider the the West's role in in toppling the previous government in the Ukraine. So there's that to contend with. And if anything does light a spark in Europe, it would probably come out of Eastern Europe because of this, because they are just adamantly bucking uh, Brussels. There's, there's no doubt about it. All right. We'll pick up on a few of these points and explore others. Joseph P. Farrell, my guest, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't you dare go away. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Zoomer Radio. 
Joseph, I don't think there's any doubt that we are now in the midst of a new Cold War. I think, uh-huh. though, the adversaries, uh, the, the true adversaries here are the U.S. and China. I mean, Russia with uh-huh. a, a GDP uh, equivalent to maybe Texas, I don't think really is, is the true adversary, ultimately. What are your thoughts? Well, yes and no. Um, I do agree that Russia is not the significant economic power that it was under the Soviet Union, especially when when the old Soviet republics devolved away from from Moscow's control. Uh, Russia still maintains a, a first rank conventional and, and thermonuclear capability, and this is always going to make Russia a major contender on the field. And the other problem with Russia while we're talking about that nation, is that President Putin has repeatedly made it very clear in his speeches that he and his administration, and for that matter the Russian nation, are simply not uh, playing with with the playbook of Mr. Globalone. They they do not acknowledge that that the leadership of the world should devolve to to multinational corporations and so on and so forth. They're just not willing to play that game and they've been bucking the trend so they're going to be a major player whether we like it or not china i i agree with you there china has uh overtaken the united states in terms of of economic prosperity and so on and so forth it does have a number of very interesting systemic problems but if you watch what has been happening with the big three in asia russia china and japan the most interesting game here is is this game that Russia is playing with Japan, in my opinion, because Shinzo Abe and Mr. Putin have sidestepped the issue of trying to settle a peace accord uh, and put a formal end to their hostilities, you know, dating back to World War II. Over the, uh, the Kuril Islands, isn't it? Over the Kuril Islands, precisely. What they've done is they've decided more or less to go ahead with the idea of making those islands kind of free trade zones. And this is interesting to me because it appears to me that Mr. Putin, in order to offset the Chinese influence in funding the development of Siberian infrastructure and so on, is very cagely turning towards Japan to offset the Chinese influence. So he's playing Japan and China against each other and doing so quite successfully. Now, for Mr. Abe's part, he also has been playing a very, very cagey diplomatic game the past few years. He has stepped up Japanese rearmament, and this is in response, ostensibly to American calls for for its allies to take a greater <coughs> pardon me a greater role in their defense but I think in terms of Japanese strategic thinking what they're looking at is that America is no longer number one a reliable ally number two America's overextended and for Japan therefore to maintain its position and its security it's going to have to rearm regardless of what Washington wants or not because they're thinking of the long-term challenge from China 
So this is the reason I think you see Abe going ahead with with rearmament at the same time that he's extending all of this uh, financial investment to Russia. And from the Japanese point of view, again, Richard, this makes very good strategic sense because Russia has the energy resources that Japan needs and the supply lines are much closer to Japan in, in a certain sense. They don't have to haul oil from the Middle East and hence those supply lines are less subject to interdiction. So it makes a, a great deal of sense for this Russo-Japanese rapprochement to be occurring. Well, isn't that good news for the West, that, that Russia would would uh, align itself more in Japan's sphere than, than China's? I think it is, ultimately. You know, ultimately it means that the Russians are going to be faced with a strategic choice, which, you know, they're, they're not going to be faced with for the next 10 years, but ultimately they're going to have to make a choice on where they throw the, the majority of their weight. And my suspicion is that Russia, just by dint of its more Western cultural makeup is is going to go with Japan rather than China. But that could change. You know, again, as I said, China is uh, experiencing this massive uh, expansion of, of Christianity, mostly of an evangelical form. And that could, that could play into China's long-term future. And I should add here, Richard, a very interesting thing. I, I did a study or saw a study a few years ago and even blogged about this, that the Chinese interior ministry had done a study of various religions and to figure out which one would be the best long-term bet for China. And to me, that was a huge telling study that they would do because it's an indicator, number one, that they know that communism is ultimately going to lose its appeal. And they have to have some cultural mechanism to, to cohere the nation, and yet a, a mechanism that's going to leave its, its, you know, its elite more or less in charge. So this could be something that that is part of a long-term Chinese strategy, you know, we'll see. Um it's it it would it would fit the kind of Confucian mentality of of the mandarins that that run the Chinese state to do that kind of thinking you know they think in very long term strategic ways culturally in ways that Western nations tend not to do so we could be looking at a long term game here developing between Russia Japan and China and that's exactly what I think is going to be the next ten to twenty years fascinating let's talk about a, a flashpoint potential flashpoint between mm -hmm. well there are several between China and the United States. Uh, one is the those islands in the South China Sea that, mm -hmm. uh, that, that China has, uh, well, really created uh, and militarized. And uh, a Chinese admiral recently said that the best way to deal with the United States in this regard is to sink a couple of their aircraft carriers because mm -hmm. they simply don't have the spine uh, for, for, for a battle. What do you make of those comments? And, and where is this heading, this, uh, this battle in the South Sea? Well, in a certain sense, I think it is bluster, but at the same time, I think it's it's some very some very cagey analysis because the USA is in a very very weak position right now. It's overextended. Uh, its balance of trade, as you know, is is just abysmal. Uh, there's tremendous pressure on the dollar. Um, 
China is is going full tilt in space, which is going to be the new uh, the new strategic theater of confrontation. So I do think that there's some merit to this. The other problem here, Richard, is we've got to remember that the the American military is getting much less return for the dollar than is China for the yuan or Russia for the ruble. Uh, they're spending you know much less on. A, a defense infrastructure that's able to deliver good product, you know, while the United States is pouring trillions into airplanes that, that don't perform according to specification and so on. Uh, the Gerald Ford, the recent American aircraft carrier, has been suffering all sorts of technical problems and difficulties which have kept it on and off station for the last couple of years. So there's a lot of technical problems here. The Chinese and Russians also have unveiled a whole arsenal of hypersonic cruise missiles and so on, which, you know, makes makes American aircraft carriers sitting ducks. So there's a lot of technical challenge. I don't therefore think that any sort of direct confrontation is going to be in the works. Um, at least from the American side, because they've they've simply got to modernize the military and get a handle on on defense spending and make sure that they're getting a proper return for the investment dollar, which we're not getting. In other words, the the corruption in the American system, particularly with the defense contractors, is now coming home to roost, and it's going to take quite a long time to fix. And there's another problem, Richard, that we have to mention in this respect. China is a nation of a billion people, and it's invested heavily in education. They're producing engineers and scientists that are tremendously capable and simply by dint of sheer numbers they can overwhelm the united states you know we're one-third the population they are and we're dealing with an educational system by and large in this country that's in complete dilapidation so education in this country in my opinion is now a national security issue so that's the other problem that the united states faces long term fascinating i've never heard anyone put it in those terms, education and national security issue. Uh, we're heading into a break in about a minute here, but just quickly, uh, mm -hmm. what about the demographic issues that, that China is is facing? The, the decades-long policy, uh, one-child policy, right. uh, that, that favored uh, the birth of, of young males, you now have several generations of men who cannot find wives. With right. that, we know more crime, uh, right. et cetera, et cetera. Speak to me just very briefly about that. Well, this is one of those inbuilt systemic problems in China that I, I alluded to earlier. They're going to have to reconsider that, that whole policy. Uh, and it's interesting to note that China has been going back and forth on the whole GMO issue because, of course, they've got a billion mouths to feed. And they're going to have to figure out a way, number one, to feed their population. I think this is why you see the sudden and dramatic and very effective Chinese expansion into Africa. They're looking at Africa as their grain basket. Fascinating. All right. More of my conversation with Joseph P. Farrell right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. 
Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Curiosity, or did the devil make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Uh, sticking with the uh, with uh, Asia, uh, it's been quiet for a while, but I understand more talks are scheduled between the United States and, and North Korea. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you evaluate the Trump administration's handling of, of nuclear North Korea? Well, so far, I think it's been very successful, contrary to all expectations. Now, the, the rub is going to come on verification of the denuclearization and then secondly how the the two koreas are going to handle the issue of any potential reunification and get everybody else on board with it that is you know has an interest in the region china russia japan the united states now i suspect that russia and japan are going to give their blessing to it simply because they don't want to to have to contend with with a nuclear North Korea and and a, a more or less out of control regime. China could be a bit more difficult and that I suspect will depend on whether or not China links Korean issues to other Asian security issues like the South China Sea that you've mentioned, uh, access to other Asian markets, Indonesia, Australia, and so on and so forth. So it could be a case where China is going to go uh, the difficult road and play a difficult diplomatic game as far as Korea is concerned. What's the best possible outcome in your mind? Best possible outcome in my mind would be for some sort of reunification. Uh, I, I even have toyed with the idea, Richard, that the South Koreans may play the same sort of card that Chancellor Kohl did when, when the Germanys were reunified after the collapse of the Berlin Wall, when he made the tender of one West German Deutschmark for one East German Deutschmark at par value. In other words, he took a financial hit for the short term to quickly integrate the economy of East Germany back into the total national economy. You might see something similar be offered by South Korea, and you know they're certainly rich enough to do it. So that might be in the cards. But the, you know, I, I say that. Richard, without having a shred of evidence to back it up, it's it's a suspicion. It's a it's an intuition more than anything else at this stage. Uh, I want to float a little theory I have out there, and let let me get your take on this. And again, mm-hmm. not really backed by you know data, but my my perception is that going forward, with the emergence of China, as you say, mm-hmm. the United States is overextended. In order to keep them in check, in order to keep for per- perhaps a future nuclear Iran in check, what we're going mm-hmm. to see is a reproliferation of nuclear missiles by American allies. What do you think about a nuclear Japan, a nuclear South Africa, a nuclear Taiwan, and a nuclear Saudi Arabia? Well, I absolutely think that nuclear proliferation is going to occur. Um, 
I I have had the strongest suspicion for many years that Japan has had a covert nuclear weapons program. Uh, by the same token, I, I think that Germany is, is a closet nuclear power. They're just not telling anybody. So I think that this is in the cards. The, the more so, you'll recall the, the Obama administration made the announcement that America simply has to pivot to the Pacific. And if you look at the Trump administration policy, it's more or less trying to continue that that pivot. So I, I suspect strongly that this is going to happen. And again, if you put yourself in Japan's shoes for a moment, Japan, if you cannot rely on the United States for your military umbrella, you're going to rearm on your own anyway. And you're going to do so simply to offset the tremendous nuclear power of, of Russia and China. And we need to remember that in countries like Japan or Germany's case, we're dealing quite literally with turnkey nuclear powers. They can turn the key and have an arsenal of nuclear weapons built up in four weeks if they want to. So it's it's really a case, I think you're you're absolutely correct that this this could continue. Now Saudi Arabia is another problem. I don't see uh, any of the European powers or Iran or Israel going for a nuclear uh, a nuclear Saudi Arabia, e even if the United States were to back it. Um, I think that there would be every likelihood of an Israeli strike to take out any sort of uh, potential like that. And if not Israeli, then certainly Iranian. Um, I just don't see that working in the cards. I was thinking that perhaps an, a, a nuclear Iran would make for strange bedfellows in the Middle East, and we've already seen yep. some overtures between Saudi Arabia and Israel. Perhaps yep. that a nuclear Saudi Arabia would come after, uh, you know, tremendous reform and perhaps a, a, a new alliance. It could be that, or it could be even, you know, if we really want to walk out to the end of the twig of speculation here, we could even see some sort of agreement between Israel and Saudi Arabia to use the Israeli nuclear umbrella, which everybody knows that they have. Uh, I, I don't know, but I just don't see Saudi Arabia becoming on its own a, a nuclear power. Uh, I think there would be too much opposition to that. All right, sit tight, Joseph. We'll come back in a moment and finish up strong right here on The Conspiracy. Show. Loose lips sink ships, and sometimes corporations. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. And we're back with Joseph Farrell. Uh, jo Joseph, you were, you've been doing a lot. You've been very active on YouTube. Uh, what's, uh, what's happening there? Well, nothing much. You know, I do my I do my Thursday evening news and views from the Nefarium. Um, that's that's primarily, I think, what you're probably yes. referring to. It's it's my it's just my weekly website podcast of picking a, a certain story and and giving some commentary about it. Um, I've been doing that for I think about ten years. Every Thursday is it? Every uh, Thursday, yeah. All right, and and uh, what time does that uh, launch? 
whenever whenever I get it done. <laughs> there's, there's no set time. It's it's not a it's not a participatory thing. Now on my website, I do have uh, every other Friday. I do have what I call a members vid chat where I interact extensively with with the members on my website and with the questions they send or comments and so on. But uh, that's that's not a generally broadcast thing. All right. Well, the best thing then to do would be to subscribe to the YouTube channel so people can get the notification when it's uh, when it's up and ready. Right. All right. Let's go. Let's come uh, closer to the home uh, to Mm -hmm. to home, uh, the United States and uh, the Mueller investigation. They just announced uh, I think they were going to extend it another six months. That doesn't mean it's going (laughs) to last another six months. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I mean, this is the way with special counsels. They just you know, they have no parameters. They have no oversight and they just seem to meander and go wherever they want and catch as many as they can in a uh, uh, in their uh, perjury traps and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been recently uh, speculated. I mean, many people have suspected this, I think, but it's what what the Mueller probe is all about is to hide the fact that it was the Democrats involved with the Russians. So in right. a, this, again, a projection, right? The Democrats Right. Always accuse people of what they're the ones doing. What do you think of that theory that the Mueller investigation is to keep a lid on the true Russian collusion, which was by the Democrats? Well, I think I think that that has a lot of of merit to it. But I would extend the I would extend the hypothesis a bit to say, in addition to this, it is a, you know like all federal investigations in this country. You know, think of the Warren report or the Ken Starr investigation. Whenever you have this type of special investigation, it's really a cover up. Okay, and I think part of the cover up here is that there was every expectation in this country that that. Darth Hillary, as I like to call her, was, <laughs> was going to win the election. You know, Newsweek magazine or Time, I forget who it was, even had magazines printed up, you know, to run out after the election was over with a picture of Hillary under the caption, Madam President. And of course, it didn't work out that way. But I think the 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 aspect here that we have to look at is that that with the Clinton Foundation pay-to-play scheme, a lot of money was given to them in anticipation that they were going to get favors from a Clinton administration. And, of course, that didn't happen. So I view this as kind of a mafia. You know, we want our money back, pay up. And they have to scramble to come up with some explanation as to why they can't pay up you know why did hillary lose a rigged election <laughs> in other <laughs> words so i think that's a part of it you know they're trying to provide cover for for the clintons as as well uh, as to the fact that there's a massive problem with uranium one and some of uh, some of these other things well if this was a movie uh it would be like um uh, was it a Berlin Alexander Platz, which I think uh, that Fassbinder <laughs> film, which is what, like 11, 12 hours long. Yep, yep. How, how does this how does this movie end? I think at this juncture, Richard, the the hysteria in this country, which to me is is alarming. I, I've never seen anything like this. But at this juncture. Um, that you know, they're even trying to snag Alan Dershowitz, the the famous Harvard law professor, and and a liberal Democrat in in all of this nonsense. And you know, he's not having any of it. And 
I think it's got to come down now, Richard, that they're going to have to perp walk some of these people. If not, if something like this doesn't happen, if something dramatic doesn't happen, uh, you can you can number the Trump administration's days. Uh, I think you're going to see a significant part of the American electorate just kind of uh, pack up bags and crawl back into the woodwork, and that could be very, very dangerous as well because we now have a very radicalized uh, Democratic Party in this country and a Republican Party that's used to doing absolutely nothing. <laughs> so. You know, it, it could get to be a very dangerous situation unless there are some arrests made, and they they have to be prominent. They have to be prominent in order to assuage the mood of, of the people that put Mr. Trump into office. Are you talking about high-ranking Trump uh, administration officials? No, or are not, we talking about Democrats? I, I, I'm talking about Democrats, and you know some of the some of the global lonely Republicans that have played ball uh, along the way. I think, I think the mood in this country is such that it's not going to be assuaged unless something is seen to be being done. And what would be the mechanism uh, for Mueller investigating? The other side. I mean, is that going to happen once the new the new attorney general is is um, appointed? And and um, do you see that that changing anything? What this is going to sound utterly bizarre, but I what I view the appointment of William Barr as, and I just did a blog on my website about William Barr and the connections to the Promise Inslaw software thing and all of that. Um, I think that his appointment may signal a divorce between the Bush faction and the Clinton faction, which were in bed together, of course, from, from the early days of, of the Reagan administration. Um, I think that this signals a divorce. And the reason why I say that is that President Trump made a speech in Montana uh, it was a few months ago where he said, just announced very dramatically, we have finally put an end to the Bush dynasty. It was a very curious remark. And of course, you know, the crowd went, you know, went all agog and, and laughed and applauded and so on and so forth. I think what you're seeing is is a divorce. In other words, a, a deal may have been struck with the Bush faction to get rid of the Clinton faction. And something is something dramatic, I think, is is possibly going to happen as a result of it. But again, if nothing does happen, if if there are no significant arrests and, and perp walks, so to speak, I think you're going to see uh, the Trump coalition dissolve. Interesting. Does Trump get his wall? Uh, I think he will. Uh, he's he's made it very clear that he is willing to invoke presidential emergency powers. And incidentally, in a recent interview he gave to reporters before flying off to Camp David, he talked about human trafficking uh, flowing both directions from the United States to Mexico, Mexico to the United States. And this is the first time that I have heard him tie the wall issue to the issue of human trafficking. So I think he's he's going to stick to his guns there. Right. As long as he stops talking about a wall and starts talking about a steel barrier, uh, uh -huh. it's, it's interesting how he is sort of massaging the language. Uh -huh. Right. How much of this has to do with 
looking ahead into the future and mass, massive migration. I mean, you know, these small little clusters of eight, 10,000 people coming up from Honduras and Guatemala, that's going to be dwarfed in a few years. Once, you know, this United Nations pact on mass migration, uh, which Canada has signed on, you know, it's mm-hmm. going to be illegal. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're going to re-education camps for journalists. You no, know, you can't use the term illegal immigrant anymore and so forth. How mm-hmm. much of this building, this wall is in anticipation of that? Uh, just very quickly before we close out. I think it's related to a very different issue. The United States is attempting to reshore industry and bring in a lot of technical and scientific expertise as fast as it can. And a lot of this is is and is going to come from Asia. And if you are wanting to come to the United States, you want to make very sure that your your borders are secure and that these people that you're bringing into this country are secure. I think this is kind of the hidden issue behind all of this. This is part of a reshoring agenda, I think, that really began to occur at least to certain factions of Mr. Globaloney about 10 years ago, that, that globalonism and this free trade stuff was not working and they'd have to shore up their base of power, which is in, in North America, the United States and Canada. So I think that's the hidden agenda here. Joseph, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. Thanks for having me back. Joseph P. Farrell. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Rosemary Ellen Guiley joins me this hour. She's down in New Orleans for a conference and to kick off Mardi Gras. She's edited and compiled another Fate Presents book. This one about time slips and time travel. Two of my favorite subjects. And before we get to Rosemary, just a reminder, if you love The Conspiracy Show, you really need to check out my podcast, Conspiracy Unlimited. Same great guests and subjects, but Conspiracy Unlimited drops three days a week. That's right. Episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Listen and subscribe at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is a best-selling author, researcher, and investigator in the paranormal, metaphysical, and related fields, including hauntings, psychic skills and protection, afterlife studies, and spirit communication, cryptids, alien contact, and interdimensional aspects of our extraordinary experiences. Get this, she's written almost 70 books on the paranormal, several of them major encyclopedic works, and her website is visionaryliving.com. Rosemary, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm doing well, Richard. It's nice to kick off the new year, and Joe and I are in New Orleans, 
to start the new year, we um, have arrived for the very official start of Mardi Gras. We saw the very first parade the other night, and we've got some events to do. We're doing some sightseeing. I'll be doing a little bit of ghost research. We're going out to the Myrtles Plantation. So it's a pack. we're here for a whole week, and it's uh, a really a packed week. Oh, great. Well, I'm guessing uh, because of uh, the history of New Orleans and the age of that wonderful city, it must be one of the most haunted locations in America, I'm guessing. It certainly has a lot going on. Uh, The ghosts here go back to at least the 1700s. It's had a very colorful, I would even say boisterous kind of history. Uh, Certainly has been ravaged by some of the epidemics that uh, swept through earlier times uh, around the world and uh, was under Spanish, French, and then American rule. So we have different cultures. And then, of course, uh, with the slave trade that was so uh, prominent uh, in Louisiana, uh, we have the import of beliefs from the Caribbean that uh, became merged into voodoo, which was kind of a syncretization of uh, Christianity and tribal beliefs. So spiritually... New Orleans has a very colorful history, and it makes for a very haunted past. I'll bet. I'll bet. Well, here you are, kicking off 2019 with another Fate Presents uh, books uh, book. This is uh, second or third uh, in the series, I'm, I'm guessing? Well, this actually is number five. Oh, number five. I, I can't keep yes. up. I cannot keep <laughs> up. Uh, this one, Slips in Time and Space. Fate Presents Slips in Time and Space, compiled and edited uh, by Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Now, differentiate time travel and time slips for me. Well, time travel is the concept that we could do um, shifts in time deliberately, that there would be some device or some science, some mechanism whereby we could willfully, intentionally travel through time, either into the future or into the past. And time slips are episodes that happen spontaneously, unexpectedly to people, where they find that suddenly they're no longer in the present, they're somewhere else, and it's usually the past. Uh, There are a whole host of characteristics around these kinds of events. They have been documented since ancient times. And um, they seem to, to happen in certain places, and also when people insert, are in certain emotional or psychic states. My feeling is about time slips, Richard, is that they are happening more frequently. Uh, and I think that has to do with uh, the advancements we have in science. Uh, with the collective attention that uh, we've focused for decades now on things like time travel, space travel, the paranormal. Uh, They've really primed human, all of these events and advancements have really primed human consciousness to contemplate these things in mass. You know, we have a lot of people thinking about these things and talking about their experiences, and I think that it does actually open up things more in the timescape for us. Now, you, you've pointed out uh, the difference between time slips and time travel, but just so people understand, the, the, this book also features a great deal, chapters, uh, to deal with time travel and things like the Philadelphia Experiment uh, and, and then time slips as well. So it's all in here. Um, you mentioned that, that 
time slips go way back in history. In fact, uh, in the introduction, you point out one that goes all the way back uh, to something like 400 BC. This was a, a Hindu epic, Mahabharata. Uh, tell me about that. What, what happened back then? Well, interestingly, ancient myths uh, in, in all cultures around the planet deal with the concept of time. And time for us is fixed. It's absolute, even though Einstein proved that it's relative. It's, it goes uh, in one direction from past uh, into the future. And we orient our world around time, the celestial movements, our clocks, our whole world is oriented around this. But in mythology, time is really much more fluid. And there are many stories about the gods, for example, moving through time and heroes, you know, the semi-divine heroes moving through time as well. And in this one particular uh, story from the Mahabharata uh, a, a king wants to find a suitor for his daughter, and so they decide to go visit Brahma. And they spend some time in his court, and it doesn't seem to them that very much time has passed. But when they finally get to see Brahma, they discover that, like fairyland, a huge amount of time has passed, and everybody that they knew in the kingdom that they left behind was long dead. And Brahma explains that uh, time passes very differently in different realms. But uh, the story has a happy ending because she gets fixed up anyway with a very nice suitor, so uh, so all is well. But we have parallels to this story in, in so many myths, and, and uh, we're very familiar in our Western culture with the fairyland, mm. that, um, you know, if, if, you, if you somehow slipped into the underground world of the fairies, time passed much more slowly than it does um, on the surface of the earth. You might think that only two or three days had elapsed, and if somehow you were able to go back to the surface of the earth, you would find that maybe even lifetimes had passed. So all of these stories illustrate um, an as- aspects of time that pre-exist our concepts of linear time. Well, linear time, um, as you point out in, in the mystical traditions, it doesn't exist. But uh, you take a little time also sort of explaining how time has been perceived or studied by some of the great minds. Uh, you talk about Isaac Newton and Albert Einstein. Just let's uh, drill down a little bit on uh, sort of the nature of time as understood by some of the great minds. Well, I think um, uh, Isaac Newton was a very good example of the clockwork universe, uh, that it was uh, everything is ordered mechanistically, uh, and including the passage of time. Uh, Einstein came along and demonstrated that uh, time is not absolute, it's not fixed, it's relative, and how time passes depends upon the perspective of the percipient, and also, uh, interestingly, where we live on the planet and, and what sort of speeds we might be traveling at. Uh, for example, uh, one of the famous illustrations of this is that um, if you have a spaceship traveling at the speed of light or close to the speed of light, uh, the people on that spaceship are going to age much more slowly than the people back at Earth. Um, And Einstein even went on to say that people who lived at higher elevations would age faster than people living at sea level. So uh, I guess anyone who's interested in the youth culture might give that some thought. (laughs) Uh, 
I'm always, I'm, I mean, I'm fascinated by time travel, one of my favorite uh, subjects. Um, and then, I mean, we have sort of two approaches to time travel, for example. We have uh, the time travel envisaged by people like H.G. Wells and the creators of Back to the Future, something that requires a device, a machine, whether it's the DeLorean car or whether it's, uh, you know, that fabulous uh, time machine um, imagined by H.G. Wells. Uh, but then, as you point out in Time Slips, you have uh, the idea that we can simply um, either will ourselves to time travel or it could it could come about through the intervention uh, of an angel uh, or a spirit like uh, Christmas Carol in uh, Dickens' Christmas Carol. Uh, which do you think is is likely the best way to time travel or the more the, the, the most likely way that time travel can occur? My vision of the future, that when we finally develop some means of time travel, that it's going to be through consciousness. And we will have learned something about uh, perhaps quantum physics, the way the universe is constructed, that we are able mentally or consciously to bend space and time ourselves, rather than have a conveyance. And... uh, uh, of course, you know, it's very amusing from the very popular movies Back to the Future starring Michael J. Fox that he only needed to travel 88 miles per hour in that DeLorean <laughs> to launch <laughs> yes. himself into the future. If only. Uh, if only. If only. And so I don't think that we'll actually need physical conveyances. Uh, if things like wormholes exist and parallel universes, our time slip experiences demonstrate that we don't need devices to get to other states of time. And, you know, you could technically say that a time slip is time travel because you are going to another place in time, but it's not something that you intend to do. I mentioned uh, Dickens uh, and and uh, the the spirits of Christmas f- past future present, and and that allows Scrooge to to time travel. Uh, there's a a passage in your book about uh, from the late great Brad Steiger, and he talks about ghosts, ghostly encounters or spirit encounters, uh, like. Scrooge encountered, and and he talks about ghosts as being a time slip. What do you think of that idea? Maybe expand on that a little bit. You know, I have come around to the same conclusion myself as Brad, uh, just from my own research and experiences, that a lot of the things that we call ghosts really aren't ghosts, but an experience in in uh, time. And uh, I think that when we're dealing with residual hauntings, that is, imprints left over from actions and events, um, that would be what I would call a true haunting or a ghost. But when we have episodes where we seem to interact with something that's from another time or reality, we may be in some weird time slip, um, maybe not completely in the past, but maybe in some quasi-bridge world where... Um, we have an experience back in time. And uh, let me give you a couple of examples of that. And uh, one came from uh, a trip that I took to the Henry DuPont estate in Winterthur, uh, Delaware, some years ago, the historical place by um, one of the heirs of the DuPont fortune. And he loved architecture, built a huge place in different architectural uh, eras. 
And uh, I always ask the tour guides if uh, they've had any paranormal experiences. And um, the woman told me that two staff people had had a very bizarre experience where they were cleaning up one night after the place had closed. Nobody should have been in the building. They're cleaning up, locking up, and they come out of a room into a hallway and they see two people in period clothing, earlier 20th century, a man and a woman having an animated conversation in the hall. And at first they think, well, who are these people? Are they staff people who are dressed up or people who just didn't, you know, get the word to get out? And these two individuals notice her and they react. They visibly react. They're terrified. And they run into a a room uh, and she's standing in the hallway so puzzled as to what's going on that she doesn't quite know what to do. And these two figures peek around the doorway at her to see if she's still there. And when they see her, they react in fright and pull back into the room. So she steals up her courage and walks into this room. There's nobody there. There's no way out except this one door, but nobody is in the room. So to me, this this uh, is an example of a time slip in, in two directions. One, we have two people from, from the past who probably worked in that place, uh, having some vision of what appeared to be a ghost to them, uh, who is the staff person from the present reality, and they both react in uh, in shock. And uh, Steiger talked about a lot of these things, too, that maybe when we're interacting with ghosts, we're not uh, having uh, contact with residual hauntings, but with something that's literally in another place in time. Um, and one of the articles that I included in this anthology was a piece I wrote on the Versailles hauntings, very famous case from the early 20th century, uh, where two English women uh, took a visit to Versailles and had some strange episodes with what they decided was a slip in time. They saw people dressed in period clothing, uh, talking in archaic French. They discovered later that they had seen structures that um, didn't exist that way in the present anymore. They even thought they saw Marie Antoinette herself sitting on the grass sketching. And it turned out that when they talked about these experiences that other people had had similar experiences at Versailles as well. Uh, Of course, the experts who studied the case, a lot of them tried to explain it away as people in costume and they imagined things. But there were too many similarities among all of the reports. And um, that's one thing that I I would like to get into uh, is what are the characteristics of these time slips. So uh, there seems to be something going on in Versailles that uh, whether it's caught in some sort of mysterious interdimensional portal um, where the if the uh, environmental conditions fluct- are in the right flux and people are in the right state of consciousness, they have these temporary displacements in time. The question is, when people do have them, do they always come back? And that is a big mystery. Uh, I was uh, speaking recently with Jim uh, Elvich, uh, who's written a book called Dig- uh, Digital Consciousness, and before that he wrote a book called The Universe Solved, and he sort of picked up on the some of the ideas by people like uh, um, Bostrom, 
uh, the, the, uh, who has, I believe is a Swedish uh, philosopher, this idea that we're living in a, in a simulation, a, a virtual simulation. And what do you think about the idea that, that perhaps time slips are kind of maybe hints that we are living in a virtual or a simulation, and these are glitches, like almost like in, in software? It, it's a plausible explanation from, from my point of view. I'm a big fan of the Matrix trilogy, and I think that, um, that those films were very far ahead of their time in terms of how we explain reality and what might really be going on. It's, kind of, it's really a scary thought to think that we might be all caught in some sort of computer-like uh, program and things like uh, the aberrations in time could very well be imperfections in the software, but we can't rule anything out. Is there anything uh, in terms of time slips or time travel? Uh, you mentioned, you know, sort of looking for some of the commonalities. Is there anything uh, in the geography, the landscape, for example, uh, you mentioned Versailles. I don't know. Is it constructed on a ley line? Uh, that I don't know, but that would be interesting to know. And I don't think that anyone has ever, uh, to my knowledge, mapped the uh, what I would call the psychic terrain where some of these things are reported, uh, even even if they're only reported once. Um, it would be interesting because there might be some fluctuations in uh, the uh, magnetic anomalies of a place, the contours of a landscape that would contribute to uh, these time slips taking place. Uh, it's interesting that other people besides these two English women had similar experiences. And then, of course, the, the debunker said, well, uh, nobody came forward before these two women, and people were just uh, sort of um, um, imagining that they had had the same kind of experiences. Uh, but I don't think that's the case. I think that uh, something like this happens, people report it, and it encourages other people to come forward with their experiences because they're not alone, and they're less worried about looking like... Um, someone who's you know off their rocker right right i mean uh we just have about a minute and a half here but have you personally had uh have you experienced some sort of a time slip a missing time uh i'm not talking about after a night out at new orleans (laughs) (laughs) plenty of that Uh, I haven't had any experiences, profound experiences like the ones that I talk about in the book where, where people literally are lost in time for a while. Uh, I have experienced what I feel is an expansion of time in, uh, to, uh, in a personal way. Uh, and I think that time is very fluid. And to a certain extent, time is personally manageable. Uh, we can't force personal time on the collective, but I think that there are ways to manage our concept and um, ability to uh, to expand time on our own. And we can do it consciously through meditation uh, and altering our state of consciousness to put us into these bridge worlds uh, where we're neither in linear reality uh, or maybe a parallel dimension, but we're somewhere else in between, literally a twilight zone. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think we can learn to slow time down, or at least our perception of, of time. And, and you're right, through through meditation or uh, just simply 
you know, quieting the mind, which I guess, well, I guess that is meditation. All right, we'll take a quick time out. Speaking of time, Rosemary Ellen Guiley has compiled and edited Fate Presents Slips in Time. Back with more in a moment, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. We are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, editor and compiler of Fate Presents Slips in Time. And um, I wanted to ask you about uh, one particular uh, chapter in the book. about It's called Phone Call Out of Time. It was written by John Powell Riley. But uh, just the, uh, the whole idea, and I, I don't know if I've told you the story, but I've told this story on air a number of times after the death of my uh, my late radio partner, R. Gary Patterson, uh, receiving a call from him late on the Friday uh, night. Um, and he had, I later learned, had passed away at around six o'clock that night, and it was much later than that. So uh, is that simply a time slip versus receiving a phone call from, you know, from the beyond? What, what are your thoughts? And then we'll get into Riley's story. Well, the the phone call uh, from beyond time or out of time, as, as I call it, uh, is different from a phone call from the dead, which in a way is out of time as well, because the person is in the afterlife. But it's a different uh, class of call where the living receive um, a call directly from someone who has passed on. Um, and a lot of times they don't know that that person has passed on. And when they find out, it is kind of a shock. Uh, sometimes these phone calls from the dead will happen on uh, later times, such as anniversaries that are important to the living. Uh, and they're typically of, of a short duration, um, often have a lot of static on the line, like the old-style uh long-distance landlines. But this phone call out of time in the book is uniquely different from that. And it concerns a man who, uh, he'd been married, and he and his wife had divorced, but they stayed in touch, and they lived in separate parts of the planet. She was uh, in the Mediterranean, and he was uh, in America. And she called him regularly, usually at uh, a time, you know, early in the morning for him, like around 4 a.m., And they stayed in touch because they still had a lot of affection for each other. Well, he gets this phone call from her at the usual time one day, and she's all brokenhearted because a mutual friend of theirs uh, had died. And this was a young woman who, uh, at at lunch, she had choked on an olive pit and uh, passed away. And uh, he was very upset about this. Uh, A year goes by. And he gets a phone call uh, from his ex at the usual time, and she has the same news for him. She said, oh, I have some very bad news, and uh, that this young woman had died. And he said, I know. She choked on an olive pit. And she said, how did you know that? He said, well, you called me a year ago. And she said, that's impossible, because the woman had just passed away, not a year earlier, 
she had just passed away. Same woman. So this, there was no the mistaking. Same woman. Oh, my. Then oh, my. No mistaking. So this phone call, where did this phone call originate? Was it floating around? Uh, did, did this phone call originate from the future and somehow floated through time back to him a year earlier? Um, interestingly, when we have these time slips, um, time seems to move backward more than it goes forward. Hmm. That phone call uh, reminds me of a phenomenon known as the Mandela Effect. Are you familiar with the Mandela Effect? I am. And these sorts of things may be examples of um, time slips in parallel realities. And um, one, of, one of the things I do uh, discuss in portions of the book related to the mechanics of time travel is what are the physics involved and are there such things as parallel universes? And when we have slips in time, maybe we're not moving around our, our own reality so much as we're experiencing uh, parallel worlds in another dimension that are similar to ours but, but have changed. And could this account for something like the Mandela effect, where you think something has actually happened? You're convinced of it. Maybe you even read a story in the news to that effect, uh, like people who thought that Nelson Mandela had died, uh, and you discover later that you were completely wrong. Right, except that there are millions of people who share that false memory. Exactly. And so is it really a false memory or uh, some sort of shift in time? And this gets back to what I was saying early in the show, Richard, that I think these things are becoming more commonplace and involving more people uh, because we're, we've really got a global mind thing going now with the Internet and our telecommunications. We can collectively react to things around the planet almost instantly. And... This is a very powerful network that then involves more people in the same kinds of experiences. Uh, often when we talk about time slips, we talk about things like missing time or gaps in time. And that's often related to the alien abduction phenomenon. And I know uh, there's, a, there's a piece in uh, uh, time slips, or slips in time rather, uh, by... Tim Swartz called Time Distortions and the UFO Experience. Talk to me about the connection between time distortion, time slips, uh, and UFOs. There are a lot of contactees, especially abductees, who discover that they have missing time after they've had an experience. And sometimes they don't know until they've gone through regression. Sometimes um, they experience um, blacking out. Uh, and then when they come to, they discover that an unexplainable amount of time has passed. They have, they see a UFO or have an encounter, and <clears throat> it takes them longer to get home than it should have. This, this is fairly common in uh, UFO kinds of experiences, uh, much more than other kinds of time slippages. Uh, however, when, when people do have uh, time displacements, they, they often find out that um, they, they do come up with missing time. Um, there are reverse experiences, too, where people uh, have time slips where 
uh, and I've interviewed truckers and uh, who've had these sorts of things on the road and uh, where it takes them twice as long to get somewhere as it should have uh, because they've been caught in some sort of odd experience. And so what is it about UFOs that creates this phenomenon? Well, people have speculated that um, the ETs are visitors from the future. They might even be ourselves in the future. And that something happens uh, when they come into this reality uh, and bend uh, magnetic and electromagnetic energy. It creates um, holes in space and time that uh, result in things like missing time. And there may be something to that, because when you look at the characteristics to a lot of time slips, um, especially ones involving airplanes and ocean travel, like the Bermuda Triangle, the Devil's Sea, um, that there's something electromagnetic going on. There are weird storms that come up, uh, strange energy, lightning, um, that... Uh, it, these factors arise suddenly and without um, without warning, and people find themselves in fogs and these weird storms and things that don't look normal. It's as though reality has gone haywire. And that's what UFO contactees and abductees describe as well, is that when the UFO, uh, when the craft shows up, when the alien shows up and they get targeted, uh, reality shifts and um, cars and appliances and things that are electrical, they go dead. Uh, there might be weird weather effects going on around them as well. So these are things that I, uh, I think we don't really understand what the bending of forces are around time, um, but we see examples of it in certain kinds of time slip cases and missing time. Do you think, uh, we have about a minute here, do you think that uh, the time slips and gaps in time, time distortions surrounding the UFO uh, encounter may be related to the propulsion system of the UFO? It certainly has been speculated uh, that how, how would the visitors get here, that maybe they have a propulsion system that uh, is magnetic, that uses magnetism or electromagnetism to um, bend uh, space in order to arrive in our reality. And so there may be something to that, that missing time could be one of the side effects. All right. Listen, when we come back, I want to talk. I heard Dr. Bruce Goldberg on, on Coast to Coast recently talking about uh, time travel. And uh, lo and behold, Dr. Bruce Goldberg has uh, contributed a, uh, a chapter in Slips in Time. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is the editor and compiler of Fate Presents Slips in Time. And we'll discuss Bruce Goldberg and much more when The Conspiracy Show returns right after this. Stay with us. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Curiosity, or did the devil make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. 
So, Rosemary, as I was saying, I uh, I was listening to Coast a couple of weeks ago, and uh, Dr. Bruce Goldberg was uh, on talking about time travel. And, of course, he is uh, featured in Fate Presents, Slips in Time. Uh, and the, the, the title, Time Travelers Are Among Us, is is very intriguing to me because that's, you know, the, the big paradox. If time travel exists, where are the time travelers? I mean, once in a while we see some, some hoax on YouTube, or maybe they're not a hoax. I don't know. But so let's sort of reflect on that, that question. Where are the time travelers? Well, we've certainly had examples of them throughout history with mysterious individuals. Uh, and I have a section about, about people from nowhere, uh, people who just suddenly show up and um, there's usually something wrong with them. They're injured or disheveled or dazed. Uh, they say they're from uh, a country or a city that uh, doesn't exist anywhere on the planet. They may not even have documentation, um, and nothing they say makes sense to anybody. Where did they come from? And uh, Dr. Goldberg has done a lot of research for quite some time in time travel. He claims to be in contact with time travelers, uh, and he calls them chrononauts. And... Uh, one of them that he mentions in the article in the anthology, uh, he says, uh, is a man named Traxa, who comes from the 36th century. And he said, by then, time travel will already have been achieved through teleportation. We will discover the reliable technology for this in 3000, the year 3050, and um, that will enable us to move through linear time at will. And uh, for Traxa, he just beams his body back and forth. Well, uh, there have been arguments made in in physics that um, the uh, beaming uh, beaming around a la Star Trek wouldn't work very well, that uh, once you would get disintegrated, you wouldn't get put back together. Uh, and so evidently, something will be discovered at, uh, in the future to enable us to beam ourselves around like the Star Trek crew. And uh, that he, this one particular chrononaut, and as probably the others as well, they go through uh, wormholes. Uh, and that one of their purposes is that they monitor things. Uh, they monitor what's going on on Earth and maybe even make nudges in history to influence things in certain directions. Well, this opens up a very big question in terms of how we view uh, beings like angels or higher beings, even the, the visitors from alleged space like the ETs. Um, are they able to influence historical events uh, so that the the track of this planet, the track of humanity, literally shifts in time as well. These are pretty big concepts for us to start grappling with. They're not out of the question. No. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, a fa- it's why it's one of my favorite topics, if not my favorite topic. The, I am intrigued by this, by the the dilemma though. Like, if we create a time machine, let's say in well, Bruce Goldberg, I think said the year thirty something. Wouldn't that mean that you couldn't, tr- you can't travel back further in time until the time machine is turned on? Uh, so, if they invent the tr- time machine in thirty something, that means in the year four thousand, you could travel back to the year thirty something, but not before. Do you know what I mean? 
Well, there are all kinds of paradoxes like this. And, of course, the most famous one is the grandfather paradox. You know, if you went back in time to kill your grandfather before your father was born, would that mean you wouldn't exist? Right. And if you went back in time and altered something small, and there have been some very good science fiction stories uh, written around this, uh, would you alter the course of history in some profound way? And uh, one, uh, one argument uh, that gets around these paradoxes is that, well, uh, you would change history, you would change the past, so that when you went back to the future, it wouldn't be the future you left. It would be an alternate future. And this gets into the many worlds uh, concept and parallel dimensions that, uh, and even even um, some concepts in Buddhism that uh, we are constantly spinning off alternate realities with every thought and action. Uh, and there could be myriads and myriads of these uh, alternate realities going on. And so if you tried to go back in time, you might not even go back into your own time, but to an alternate time. And it, it starts to get very, very complicated uh, and in terms of what might really happen. So... I think that theoretically you could travel back in time, but would you be traveling back in time? Like, you know, if, if time travel is invented in the year 3050, uh, then perhaps technically you could travel back in time, but it wouldn't be to the same reality. It would be to an alternate reality. I agree. That makes the most sense to me. We'll take a quick time out, and when we come back, let's find out what the Russians are doing with time travel. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, my guest. Stay with us. Loose lips sink ships. And sometimes corporations. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serra from Zoomer Radio. I think we have some sort of a time slip or time distortion happening live on the radio because I can't believe this hour has flown by so quickly. Last segment with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, who has compiled and edited a wonderful collection called Fate Presents, from Fate Magazine, of course, Fate Presents Slips in Time. Uh, there is a, a chapter in the, in the time travel section uh, about uh, the Russians and how they are designing and testing time machines. It's written by by Paul Stonehill. Talk to me about that article. Well, Paul Stonehill uh, has done many articles on uh, the Russian perspective and UFOs and time travel and the paranormal uh, for fate for many years. And in this particular article, uh, he talks about claims that, that uh, the Russians had that they um, could move time by four minutes in either direction with this one particular machine. And I think that these claims uh, are largely unsubstantiated um, beyond just uh, an announcement from, from Russia. But the 
time displacement took place through electromagnetic field manipulation. And here we get back to this idea uh, that something magnetic, electromagnetic occurs uh, spontaneously or deliberately by design um, in the, the warping of time. Um, now, interestingly, there have been experiments since then, uh, even in the U.S., um, involving retrocausality um, and uh, molecules, for example, have um, been sent back in time, like a few seconds. Uh, and some of this work surrounds the, the Large Hadron Collider in Switzerland, which some people think is a rather dangerous device, that it's going to literally change our linear timescape at some point and in a very catastrophic way. But uh, that was the gist of the, uh, the Russian experiments. And they ha had a, uh, we have a photograph from uh, the original issue and fate of this time machine, which sort of looks like a big, um, a big ball uh, attached to a to a computer, uh, but it's the manipulation of electromagnetic energy. That's the dominant core idea here. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, in, certainly in the the short term, that might be our best hope uh, or most feasible uh, plan for time travel is. Not to send an entire human back, but to be to be sending information uh, which could be contained in I don't know, like a quark or something. And I think this is what um, uh, Ronald Mallet at the University of Connecticut has in mind that you could use a time machine if you can send information back. Uh, you could use it as an early warning de device. For example, hey, there's going to be an earthquake on this day. Send that to the past, and then people could prepare themselves. Uh, and and yet, if you did that, do we get into some of these paradox conundrums then? Ah. That what re what reality are you really altering? Uh, and if you uh, if you alter the way the earthquake happens or people react to it, then um, in the future, how would they know to send a warning back? Uh, and uh, it, it gets mind boggling. That's for sure. But I think that the future for humanity will transcend linear time. Uh, all the mystical philosophies talk about time being eternal now, that everything happens in an eternal now, uh, and that time is fluid, it's malleable, it's not fixed. And how will that shape the reality that we start living in? Tell me about the restaurant that disappeared. This actually is, um, I don't want to use the word common because time slips aren't all that common, but among time slips ex experiences, this is one of the more common ones where people are out traveling on the road, they go someplace, um, like they find a hotel or a restaurant, they stop in, uh, they have an actual experience and interaction with people, and when they try to find the place again, uh, it's not even there. And that was the case with the restaurant that disappeared. Uh, people stopped in on the road. Um, the waitresses are all dressed in very, what seems like old style uh, outfits. The, a lot of diners have kind of an old look anyway, but this place looks really old. Uh, and even though they're the only people in the place, uh, the waitresses seem to be very rushed and they're talking about, you know, it's, you know, rush hour. 
they eat food, they're handed a bill that's ridiculous for the present time uh, in terms of the cost of it, but they pay it. And uh, later they decide, you know, to find it again, and there's no trace of it. Uh, now, if people are able to do research, uh, sometimes they are and sometimes they aren't, but they try and track things down like, well, what happened to, you know, this place that was there? They might find out from uh, historical records or local people that there used to be a restaurant there uh, decades ago. So this, however, does not qualify as a ghost experience because they actually interacted with solid people. They ate food. They paid a bill. Um, and everything seemed to be kind of strange, but yet normal. It wasn't like encountering a residual apparition. Um, I have another uh, a case where uh, some English people on holiday in France uh, tried to find lodging one night and uh, they were directed by a very strange man at one motel who said the place was full to go off the beaten path uh, to another place where he knew there would be room. And they find this old place. It's really peculiar. Everything seems to be old-fashioned. There aren't any elevators. There's no telephones. Nothing seems to be modern in the place. Nobody speaks English. Um, they even take photographs at the place. And here again, it's the ridiculous bill. Um, and, you know, for, for pennies, you know, literally, uh, what it would cost someone in the present time to, to pay for lodging and, and meals. Oddly, none of their photographs come out of the place. There isn't any evidence that something happened to the negative. They took uh, photographs with film camera, a film camera. No evidence that something happened to the negatives, but none of the photographs of the actual hotel uh, turned out. Well, when they, uh, when they are on their way back from the holiday, uh, they try to find the place again because, hey, it was such, you know, so cheap. Why not stay there again? And they, they again, can't find it. Um, gone. And no trace of it. Uh, and uh, it had all the, the accoutrements of, you know, the turn of the 20th century uh, kind of feel. Uh, these are... In terms of time slips, these are the more common kinds of, of experiences that people have. And what is it um, about road trips that takes us into other realities? As a parallel, Richard, I just want to mention that when I was uh, working on a book on cryptids, um, I discovered a commonality to so many experiences where people were on the road and they went around a bend in the road and there was this thing in the road that defied explanation. And it was always a bend, a curve. And is there something about curving roads in certain landscapes that might have a certain energy to them where these time bends start to take place? Uh, because these sorts of time displacements with the restaurants and the hotels, they're road trip stories. Well, it's always a delight bending some time with you, Rosemary, and I can't thank you enough for hanging out with me for this last hour. Well, thank you, Richard. Always a pleasure. And uh, look forward to speaking with you next month. Fate presents Slips in Time.
And that's edited and compiled by Rosemary Ellen Guiley, her website, visionaryliving.com. Back next week with a brand new show. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. And what I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.